Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. In 12th century China, Lin Yin Chen, a vain health fanatic, drank what his doctor prescribed him as the elixir of life and died a slow and agonizing death from mercury poisoning. In 1604, the boasts of the Scots alchemist Alexander Seddon reached the ears of Christian II, the impoverished but greedy elector of Saxony. Christian lured the short, rotund alchemist to his castle and begged for the secret of transmutation. Seton refused, so Christian imprisoned the adept in a tower and set forty guards to torture the secret from him. Pierced with pointed iron, scorched with molten lead, burnt by fire, beaten with rods and racked until his limbs were twisted and disjointed, Seton held his tongue. Finally left in solitary confinement, he managed to escape, but broken as he was, he died shortly after. In 1703, Domenico Parodi, an established Genoese sculptor, met his end more swiftly, neglecting his commissions to search for the alchemical formula which would transmute base metal into gold. He stumbled on a compound of antimony, inhaling a whiff of the poisonous gas, transmuted himself to oblivion. For over 2,000 years, alchemists all over the world sacrificed their time, energy, money, and often themselves to the great and terrible goddess of alchemy, who demanded much but promised more to those courageous enough to become her elected sons. What's shocking to me is why these guys keep escaping from prison. How come they all escape from prison? Like Kelly jumps out, breaks his leg, and you know, gets caught again by the guards. Why are they all able to just walk out of these prison cells when they're left alone. <laughs> Inexhaustible wealth, spiritual perfection, and eternal life were the boons which were hers to give. But the price of failure was daunting. Poverty, the very least, damnation and death, real possibilities. The odds were against success. But in every age and in every place, there were those exceptionally hardy, or to most people foolhardy, individuals willing to accept the gamble. In their quest for wealth, spirituality, and eternal life, in a word, for perfection, alchemists went beyond the bounds of convention, science, religion, and even reason. They may never have transmuted base metal into gold or attained immortality, but chemistry was born in their laboratories. Psychologists learned from their visions. Surrealism borrowed their art, and most importantly, their quest illuminates our own. While the details of their beliefs are different from ours, the broad outline of their hopes and aspirations is the same. If we pause to ponder the enigma of alchemy, we may learn something about ourselves which has become hidden and forgotten. Heaven, as Carl Jung has said, has become empty space for us, a fair memory of things that once were, but our heart glows. The secret unrest gnaws at the roots of our being. Unlike our own empty heaven... The heaven of the alchemists was full of gaudy, bizarre images of dismembered dragons, putrefying corpses, venomous snakes copulating couples, and pelicans tearing blood from their own breasts. 
Sceptered kings and bejeweled queens rub shoulders with strange hermaphrodite creatures standing on sun disks or lying on blazing funeral pyres. Poison, warfare, murder, and incest are the dark side of love, marriage, birth, and eternal life. All the best and worst in human nature lies concealed in the profuse richness of alchemical symbolism. If we will take the time to relearn its language, the images resume a life which speaks to our own. Alchemy shares the vocabulary of symbols common to all myths and religions, just as the human body and brain have been virtually unchanged for tens of thousands of years. So have human experiences and the way men describe and explain them. Birth, youth, maturity, old age, and death are obvious constants. The dichotomies of life and death darkness and light, male and female, above and below, sleep and awakening, have inevitably shaped and structured the way men think now, and always have, about the world and themselves. Myth and religion originated to make sense of man's brief adventure on earth, to help him accept the inevitable and find meaning in it. Both myth and religion are inherently conservative because they justify and reinforce tradition by presenting it as the decree of some higher authority, whether the gods, ancestors, or natural law. They also hint to answers to more difficult questions about the meaning of life and death, which transcend the immediate need of society to make good and useful citizens. Alchemy functioned on the same two levels. It was both practical and religious, teaching men techniques to ensure health, wealth, and longevity, and providing comforting explanations for man's place in the universe. These are the two sides of alchemy, and each appealed to a different kind of man. The tough-minded, to use William James's graphic phrase, were anxious to ensure the good life here and now. They were attracted to alchemy through the intoxicating notion of inexhaustible wealth and eternal youth. More often than not, they dissipated their wealth and embittered their lives, fruitlessly seeking to transmute base metals into gold and old flesh to youthful suppleness. There were also the tender-minded souls, tormented by the cruel brevity of life and thirsting after the still waters and deeper meaning of it all. They were attracted to the other side of alchemy and joined the ranks of spiritual alchemists who actually did find the elusive stone in their search for spiritual riches in the world to come. But both the tough and the tender-minded were driven by the same all-too-human longing to achieve stability and permanence in a world which offers neither. And we are so driven still. Well, I haven't seen this book since I was a child. My, my mother had this book in her library. Um, I grew up with it because it came out the year before I was born, just a few months, actually, I believe, before I was born. And... Um, I remember looking at it here and there as a kid because of the cool drawings and illustrations. But it is by a scholar who I came to have some of the greatest respect for and is uh, well-known today and alive and well-teaching, I believe. Well, who knows since COVID. But Alison Kuder, Dr. Alison Kuder, is one of the greatest scholars of esotericism in our day, along with other wonderful men and women like Clara Fanger and Honograph and all of those people. So, I'm going to look into the alchemist credo of the first chapter and uh, explore some of that stuff with you. He must know his first philosophy if he trusts to come by alchemy. Thomas Norton, 1477. Nicholas Flamel, a poor scrivener, lived in Paris with his devoted wife, Perenelle. One day he chanced upon an old book, beautifully bound in brass and filled with strange drawings. Flamel bought the book for two florins and brought it home to study. For days he pondered the strange pictures. In one, an old man with an hourglass fastened on his head and a scythe in his hand flew down from heaven and tried to hack off the winged feet of the young god Mercury. In another, the north wind blew fiercely on a bush of red and white flowers growing on a mountaintop. Beneath the bush, dragons and griffins sat serenely in their nests. The most frightening picture showed King Herod brandishing a huge sword and ordering the soldiers around him to massacre a multitude of tiny infants whose mothers wept piteously at the feet of the unpitying soldiers. 
Flamel learned that the book had been written by Abraham the Jew, prince, priest, Levite, astrologer, and philosopher, to teach his brethren how to make the gold they were forced to pay Rome as tribute. Flamel consulted the most famous alchemists in Paris, from whom he learned a great deal about the exotic images in his extraordinary book, but he could not decipher the ultimate secret enigmatically hidden in its pages. He fell into a state of listless despondency, which so worried his wife that she begged to know what troubled him. Flamel showed her the book and found to his delight that her curiosity matched his own. For the next 21 years, they labored together to unlock the secret of the Philosopher's Stone. Nearing despair, they decided Flamel should travel to Spain to seek out a Jew learned in the Kabbalah who might explain the enigmatic figures. Flamel set off across Europe and eventually found a Jewish physician in Spain by the name of Master Conscious, who was overjoyed to see pictures from a book he had long since thought lost. As they journeyed together back to France, Master Conscious began to explain the mysteries of the images, but before revealing the final secret, the Jew fell sick and died at sea. And above we have the hieroglyphic figures of Nicholas Flamel. Nicholas Flamel, his exposition of the hieroglyphical figures in 1624. Flamel returned to the arms of his beloved Perenal, knowing much more than when he set out, but not the whole secret of the art. After many years of hard and exacting laboratory work, he and Perenal at last discovered the formula. At noon on 17 January 1382, the couple turned a half pound of mercury into pure silver. Four months later, on 25th April, at about five in the afternoon, they accomplished the more difficult task of transmuting the same amount of mercury into pure gold. Note Nicholas Flamel, his Expositions of the Hieroglyphical Figures by Irenaeus Orandus, London, 1624. The childless couple devoted the fortune they subsequently made to charity. They helped widows and orphans build 14 hospitals, three chapels, seven churches, and restored many churchyards. Flamel had copies of the enigmatic figures from his book painted on the arch at the Churchyard of the Holy Innocents, where they stood up until the middle of the 18th century, eloquent testimony to the most romantic alchemical success story ever recorded. Note, Nicholas Flamel... 1330 to 1418, was indeed a Parisian scrivener who left a fortune to charity and paid for the alchemical hieroglyphs in the churchyard of the Innocents. A marble tablet from his tomb is preserved in the Musée de Cluny. It is ornamented with figures of St. Peter and St. Paul and symbols of the sun and moon. The books attributed to Flamel were, however, 16th and 17th century forgeries. Flamel's alchemical fame and the source of his fortune have been the subject of considerable conjecture. C.J. Ferguson, Bibliotheca Chemica, and also El Figuere, Alchemy, et la Alchemistes, Paris, 1854. Also A.E. Waite. Alchemists Through the Ages, Lives of the Famous Alchemical Philosophers, New York, 1970, first published in 1888. Those are some further readings for you. Not every alchemist was as successful as Nicholas Flamel. Vasari recounts the cautionary tale of the painter Parmigianino, 1503-40, a great and original artist whose fatal passion for alchemy led to his impoverishment and subsequent death. Parmigianino had been commissioned to paint the vaults of domes of the Staccata, a famous Renaissance church in Parma. But he became so involved in alchemical experiments that he began to abandon his paintbrush for the furnace. Instead of racking his brains for beautiful images and painting them on the church walls, he wasted his time playing with charcoal fires and glass vessels and spent more money in a day than he earned by a week's work on the church. The men of the company of the Staccata soon realized he had given up painting and brought a lawsuit against him for the return of the money they had paid him in advance. Parmigianino fled in the dead of night to Casal Maggiore. There for a time he cleared his head of alchemical fantasies and painted a panel picture for the Church of St. Stephen. But this interlude of sanity, as Vasari tells us, was unfortunately brief. Quote, in the end, having his mind still set on his alchemy, Parmigianino, like so many others, 
grew quite crazy. He changed from a fastidious and gentle person into an almost savage and unrecognizable man with a long beard and unkempt hair. Being so reduced and having grown melancholic and eccentric, he felt prey to a severe fever and cruel flux, which in the few days caused him to pass to a better life. And in this way he found relief from the torments of this world which he never knew but as a place full of troubles and cares. He was buried naked, as he had directed, with a cross of cypress upright on his chest. Note R. Wittkauer, born under Saturn, New York, 1963. Hope sprang eternal in alchemical breasts. For every story of failure, like Parmigianino's, alchemists could quote hundreds of successes like Flamel's. The old adage, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride applies to alchemists who rode fast and furiously on the horses of their imaginations after the pot of gold at the end of the alchemical rainbow alchemists were not however mad fools charging about recklessly on uncharted terrain they galloped along the well-worn path of ancient philosophy and they were guided over the hurdles they encountered by the sage advice of venerated philosophers all the wisdom of the ages was brought to bear on the very human quest for wealth, health, and eternal life. Hope and theory were so inextricably entwined in alchemy that they stood and fell together. If a little green man from Mars spent four days on Earth drinking scotch and soda, whiskey and soda, vermouth and soda, and brandy and soda, he might reasonably conclude that soda made him drunk. Although mistaken, he would have reached his conclusion through a seemingly flawless combination of observation and rational deduction. Alchemists did nothing less. They accepted the same scientific theories about matter as most intelligent people up to the 18th century. The theory began with Aristotle and, like tumbleweed, rolled through the following centuries, gathering bits and pieces as it went. Transmutation is a fact of life. Caterpillars turn into butterflies. Ice melts to water. Little acorns grow to mighty oaks, and food turns into all too solid flesh. Endless other transmutations occur naturally or in the laboratory. The question people asked long before there were alchemists was, why? Aristotle provided an answer which satisfied most Westerners for over 2,000 years. He believed, like Plato, that everything was formed from an indeterminate plastic-like matter. When the four qualities of hot, cold, moist, and dry were impressed on this first matter, like a seal on molten wax, they produced the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Everything consisted of the four elements combined in various proportions. Aristotle's choice of the four elements was obviously arbitrary. The Chinese recognized five, but his theory did provide a plausible shorthand way of categorizing and explaining many of the chemical and physical properties of bodies. A solid body was solid because it contained a larger proportion of earth than any other element. Liquids were composed mostly of water and gases, of air. The element fire had to be in bodies before they could burn. It wasn't easy or even impossible to break down substances, but when green wood burned, alchemists assumed they saw the four elements. The smoke rising from burning wood was air, the vapors given off were water, the ashes were earth, and the fire itself was naturally fire. Aristotle's theory of the four elements was such a fundamental part of Western thought until relatively recently that it is hard to understand the literature of the past without it. It may seem insane or inane now, but the scientific truths of one age are inevitably the laughing matter of the next. At the beginning of the 20th century, many eminent physicians attributed the paralysis accompanying the last stages of syphilis to excessive travel. To some degree, the pundits were right. Sailors, traveling salesmen, and engine drivers were more likely to end up syphilitic than men whose work bound them more closely to the hearth. Because <laughs> they were all shagging the people on the road. Substances are constantly changing. They appear, grow, decay, diminish, and finally disappear. Aristotle explained this by saying that the elements within substances were in constant flux, changing from one to another, earth to water, water to air, air to fire, and back again. In this Aristotelian fairyland, the practiced alchemist had 
only to do intentionally what everywhere happened naturally. By varying the proportions of the four constituent elements in a substance, he should have been able to change one thing into another. If you will one metallic body transform into another, wrote the author of The True Glass of Alchemy, then you may, by addition and subtraction, put the more of one element and the less of another, and seethe them together, well or evil, unto your own desire. The True Glass of Alchemy, London, 1683. This book was ascribed to Roger Bacon. The diagram opposite shows how straightforward and logical this process of varying proportion was. It's the two squares, one inside the other. The outer one has the four elements, and the inner one is tagged in between fire and air with hot, fire and earth with dry, earth and water with cold, water and air with moist, as we know. Earth, for example, was the element formed when the qualities dry and cold were impressed on prime matter. To change earth into water, the quality of moist had simply to be substituted for that of dry. By the same logic, water could be changed to air by substituting the quality of hot for cold. Was this not what happened every time a kettle boiled? Aristotle expressed the same theory another way. Each substance consisted of prime matter and a specific form. The form was a kind of primitive DNA which determined all the characteristics of the substance, including the proportions of the elements it contained. The form of a lion was, therefore, quite different from the form of the lamb it coveted, just as the form of lead differed from the form of gold. All that had to be done to change one substance into another was to change the form, and this simple transformation was what alchemists set out to do. Their goal was to find the form of gold, and this was, of course, the philosopher's stone. Alchemy, wrote Albertus Magnus, famous both as an alchemist and as the teacher of saintly Thomas Aquinas, proceeds in this way, that is, destroying one substance by removing its specific form and producing the specific form of another. Note, Book of Minerals, edited and translated by Dorothy Wyckoff, Oxford, 1967. Albertus Magnus was himself a masterful changer of forms, and a Roman Catholic saint eventually, I believe. If we can believe the marvelous account of the dinner he arranged for William II, Count of Holland and King of the Romans, although it was midwinter, Albertus Magnus ordered the dining tables set up in the snow-covered garden of his monastery in Cologne, Cologne, as the startled prince sat down to dine in an icy gale, the snow suddenly disappeared, spring breezes filled the air, and sweet-smelling flowers sprang up through the frosty earth. This must be one of the miracles he performed. You have to perform validated, confirmed, scientifically factual miracles to become a saint. You know, like John Paul II, and I'm sure Cardinal Ratzinger will become a saint too, right? though I don't know what his miracle was. Maybe it was joining Hitler Youth and living to tell about it. <laughs> Who knows? I know I'm being a cheeky bugger. Anyway. The trees blossomed and songbirds flitted through their branches. As soon as the meal was finished, however, the icy form of winter took back its hold on the enchanted garden. That note is from A.E. Waite, Alchemists Through the Ages. Albertus Magnus and every other alchemist worth his salt believed that the creation of one thing demanded the prior destruction of another, hardly a novel conviction. Its long history provided the rationale behind ancient and primitive fertility rites. Only the death of Tammuz, Dionysus, Attis, Osiris, and Persephone, or the sacrifice of a human being or animal could ensure the growth of next year's food supply. Out of death comes life. Or as the Gospel of St. John says in a verse constantly quoted by alchemists, 1224, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. The notion that death must precede birth is a constant alchemical theme and explains why the first stage of the alchemist's work in which a substance is deprived of its form and reduced to prime matter is referred to as the death mortification, or putrefaction of the impure substance, which will later turn to gold. Alchemists accepted Aristotle's notion that everything in nature strives for perfection. The acorn strives to become an oak, the child a man, 
Gold was the most perfect of the seven metals, and the six base metals, silver, copper, mercury, tin, iron, and lead, struggle to reach the same perfection. Reach it they will if given either enough time in the earth or the wizardry of an alchemist. Amongst metals, wrote Petrus Bonus, in the 14th century, there is only one that is quite perfect and represents the highest stage of metallic completeness, namely gold, and all the others have a predisposition to be changed into it. Do they now? Note The New Pearl of Great Price, page 220. This work was written circa 1330 and published in an abridged and paraphrased version in 1546 by Janus Licinius. It was extremely popular and appeared in various editions and collections under different titles. The Licinius edition is extremely rare, possibly because it was such a favorite that it suffered from laboratory accidents. (laughs) A.E. Waite translated and further abridged the book in 1894. Very interesting. Abul Qasim al-Iraqi couched the same alchemical truism in pious Islamic exclamations. No, may Allah, the most exalted, have mercy on thee, that we began by saying that these six forms are all gold by species, and gold is their limit. Note, Abul Qasim al-Iraqi, the knowledge, book of knowledge acquired concerning the cultivation of gold, edited and translated by Holmyard, Paris, 1923. Gold was the most perfect of all metals because it was the most stable. It was the most stable because it contained a mixture of the four elements in such perfect proportion that they could not be separated. John Donne's The Good Morrow extends the logic of this notion into the realm of love. Whatever dies was not mixed equally. If our two loves be one, or thou and I, love so alike that none does slacken, none can die. Aristotle briefly suggested yet another theory to explain the differences between minerals and metals. Although metals and minerals were basically composed of the four elements, their immediate constituents were two exhalations formed below the surface of the earth, an earthy smoke and a watery vapor. The earthy smoke consisted of small particles of earth on their way to becoming fire, while the watery vapor was made up of particles of water in the process of turning into air. Stones and minerals were formed from the earthy smoke and therefore could not melt or liquefy. Metals were formed from the watery vapor, which explained why they are so malleable. It's from Meteorologica 36378 for those who want to read more Aristotle, which I do recommend. Alchemists took Aristotle's theory further and suggested the two exhalations were an ideal sort of sulfur and mercury, which combined in different proportions and degrees of purity to form the different minerals and metals. The mercurial principle seemed to provide a plausible enough explanation for the fact that all the known metals melted and became like the one normally liquid one, mercury. Every alchemist who accepted this theory knew perfectly well that Ordinary sulfur and mercury could not be the constituents of metals because when combined they form cinnabar, mercuric sulfide. This might have led alchemists to abandon the original theory, but instead they simply described their sulfur and mercury as sophic, philosophic, ideal, or just not vulgar. Note, sulfur and argent vive, mercury, not vulgar and such as are sold by the merchants and apothecaries, but those which give us those two fair and dear bodies which we love so much. Nicholas Flamel. So basically when they found out that things weren't the way they wanted them to be, they changed the definition of what those things meant to them. We uh, still see this practice of language and definition alive and well today, don't we? The sulfur-mercury theory survived with additions and alterations until the beginning of modern chemistry in the 18th century, not until Lavoisier gave the coup de grace to the phlogiston theory, which attributed combustion to the existence of a fiery principle in bodies, did the last traces of the sulfur-mercury theory disappear from chemistry. Phlogiston. Phlogiston makes me wish I was playing spelljammer. The sulfur-mercury theory became a basic part of Islamic and European alchemy. The fraudulent alchemist in Ben Jonson's play, The Alchemist, parades his mock alchemical knowledge by calling sulfur and mercury the parents of all other metals. 
Thomas Norton makes this human analogy even more graphic by referring to the sulfur and mercury in metals as the fair white woman married to the ruddy man. See the Ordinal of Alchemy in Elias Ashmole's important collection in the British alchemical treatises Theatrum Chemicum Britannicum, London 1652, which I'm sure many of you know well. Norton's phrase is an example of the way alchemists projected human experience onto the world about them. Alchemists made no distinction between themselves and nature. They describe everything in human terms. Metals and minerals were born, grew, married, copulated, gave birth, and died. Rocks and stones had bodies, souls, emotions, and wants. Alchemists used the passionate language of love and hate to describe the chemical reactions we set out in drab formulas. The sulfur-mercury theory was modified in the 16th century by one of the most bizarre figures in the history of science, the paranoid, uncouth, abusive, and generally drunk genius Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, 1493 to 1534, commonly known as Paracelsus, because in his own estimation he was greater than the Greek physician Celsus. Neither modest in presenting his opinions nor restrained in his language, Paracelsus launched an acrimonious attack on the scientific and medical establishment of his day. Fun to know that the English word bombastic, as we have it today, directly comes from his name, Bombastus. He dubbed physicians ignorant frauds intent on the wealth rather than the health of their patients and ridiculed their practice of bleeding and purging the sick, or when that failed of prescribing ludicrously expensive diets of delicate viands beyond the means of ordinary folk. I don't know. I think leeching and bleeding's not so bad, right? Come on. Paracelsus so incensed his opponents with his abusive tirades that they retaliated in kind and gloatingly dwelled on his drunkenness, his peculiar lack of interest in women, his disgusting habit of keeping his clothes on until they literally fell off, and his startling tendency to awaken with a terrifying leap in the air, sword drawn and eyes ablaze. Oh, that's awesome. For that description of Paracelsus given by Johannes Operinus, his assistant, see C.D. Senert, De Chemicorum Cum Aristoteles et Galenicus Consensus Ac Descensu Liber, 1633. Also on Paracelsus, C.W. Pagel, An Introduction to Philosophical Medicine in the Era of the Renaissance, Basel, 1958. For all his oddities, Paracelsus succeeded in shaking up the medical profession, and in the course of doing that, he modified alchemical theory by adding salt as the third constituent of material bodies, alongside sulfur and mercury. To prove that salt, sulfur, and mercury were the three principles of matter, Paracelsus adapted to his purpose the age-old example of burning wood. Quote, Every body consists of three things. The names of these three things are sulfur, mercury, and salt. When these three are combined, then we have what we call a body. Now understand the affair. Take first, for example, wood. This is a body. Now let it burn. That which burns is sulfur. That which vaporizes is mercury. That which turns to ash is salt. I must say it reminds me of uh, Monty Python a little bit in the Holy Grail. <laughs> oh, the properties Paracelsus and his followers associated with salt, sulfur, and mercury are not entirely what one might expect. Mercury, metallicity, fusibility, volatility volatile and unchanged in the fire. Spirit, water. Sulfur, inflammability, volatile and changed in the fire. Soul, air. Salt, uninflammability and fixidity, found in ashes. Body, earth. I think most people in uh, the modern system would be surprised to find out that um, sulfur corresponds to air, as we commonly today have sulfur representing fire instead. So it has changed. There is no fixed tradition here or ur-knowledge we are seeking, in my opinion. Next, we have a beautiful illustration in this book of three alchemical vessels, the three principles of Paracelsus um, with a woman crowned a little lizard or dragon, and then a, a plant with flowers on it. 
This combination of chemical substances and their chemical properties with spirit, soul, and body suggests how different alchemy is from modern-day chemistry. Everything in the alchemist's laboratory was alive. There was no such thing as inorganic matter, and the chemical properties of substances were determined by the spirits and souls active within them. If you can only rectify the mercury, sulfur, and salt, advises one alchemist, until the metallic spirit and body are inseparably joined together by means of the metallic soul, you thereby firmly rivet the chain of love and prepare the palace for the coronation. Note the Hermetic Museum, translated by A.E. Waite, London, 1893. If references to love, the palace, and the coronation seem out of place in a chemical formulary, it only emphasizes the gulf between our current notions of science and those of the alchemists. They would have understood these terms as clear, if allegorical allusions to the last stage of the alchemical work, when the philosopher's stone, produced by the loving union of salt, sulfur, and mercury, or body, soul, and spirit, is finally crowned as the king of all substances. Alchemists may appear imprecise and even contradictory when they simultaneously accept the four elements, the two exhalations and the three principles as the basic constituents of matter. But this apparent confusion did not occur to them. Unlike modern prisoners of a Cartesian jail, they felt completely at home in a world where each thing could be interpreted on many different levels. Basil Valentine, the famous monk alchemist who is said to have secretly tested the effects of antimony on his unwitting colleagues, much to their discomfort, hence the popular derivation of antimony from antimoine or anti-monk, felt no lack of consistency when he combined the elements and principles in his description of man. Quote, Thus the living man is a harmonious mixture of the four elements, and Adam was generated out of earth, water, air, and fire, out of soul, spirit, and body, out of mercury, sulfur, and salt the Hermetic Museum. Another alchemist stated the same truth even more paradoxically. One, and it is two, and two, and it is three, and three, and it is four, and four, and it is three, and three, and it is two, and two, and it is one. Theatrum Chemicum Principes Lectorum Actorum Tratates from Orcellus, 1622. Aristotle's philosophy provided the foundation and framework for alchemical theory and practice, but other philosophies contributed to the final structure. The Stoic concept of pneuma, which is Greek, of course, for spirit, the universal world spirit reinforced the vitalist notions inherent in alchemy from its beginning. Pneuma was an extremely thin, spirit-like matter which wafted through the universe, controlling and organizing material bodies. The Stoics believed Animals and plants reproduced according to fixed types, what are now called genotypes, because each thing contained its own specific pneuma, or pneuma, which they called the logos permaticos, or seminal principle. The seminal principle acted in much the same way as Aristotle's form, molding formless matter in a predictable way. The idea that metals grew from seminal elements or seeds became a major theme in alchemy and was the basis for many analogies alchemists made between their work and farming or gardening. Behold, my brothers, exclaimed one of the first women alchemists, Cleopatra, in the 3rd century AD, see how you water your earths and how you nourish your seeds that you may cause the fruit to be born in its season. That's from C.A. Brown, Rhetorical and Religious Aspects of Greek Alchemy, Ambix 3, 1948. 1,300 years later, the Moravian alchemist Michael Sendivogius employed a similar analogy. He who can bring himself to believe that metals are destitute of seed is unworthy to understand the mysteries of our art. Again, from the Hermetic Museum. Western alchemy was profoundly influenced by Gnosticism, a dualist philosophy which flourished before, during, and after the rise of Christianity. There were many different Gnostic sects. The Manichaeans are probably the most famous or infamous because of the influence they had on St. Augustine and through him on Christianity. But all Gnostics agreed in believing that two equal forces contend for mastery in the world, a good god and an evil demiurge. I'm not sure if that is something that all Gnostics agree on. I've talked to other academics and practitioners in Gnostic traditions who have outright 
flatly denied that that is a fundamental precept of alchemy. So I've argued it with them before and I'll argue with them again, but for now, we'll let it go. And now, for a short intermission. We will return to our usual broadcast in five, four, three, two, 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 one. The good God is unknowable. He exists above and beyond this veil of tears and played no part in its creation, which for Gnostics was a calamitous event. The evil Demiurge cunningly fashioned the world as a vast, horrendous prison into which he craftily enticed mankind. For Gnostics, man is divine, a misplaced spark of light engulfed in darkness through no fault of his own. He must struggle to free himself from this mortal coil and soar back to the Empyrean realm from which he came. The struggle is difficult. Overwhelmed by this death in life, which the ignorant take for living, man has the moment forgotten his true nature. He can be made to remember it through the experience of Gnosis, which is Greek for knowledge, which will transform him into a son of God while still in the flesh. The process of revelation gave the Gnostics their name, the Knowing Ones. Much of the esoteric or spiritual side of Western alchemy came from Gnostic thought. This is particularly clear in the case of the early Greek Gnostic practitioners of alchemy, Balos of Mendes, Zosimos, Cleopatra, and those who wrote in the name of Hermes Trismegistus. These writers described chemical reactions in Gnostic terms and dressed Gnostic doctrines in the clothes of chemistry. Within their alchemical alembics, the forces of good and evil waged battle as the alchemists brought chemical compounds to birth, destroyed them, and brought them back to a new and pure life. Zosimos experienced Gnosis in the course of his alchemical visions. So did one of the philosophers who listened to Cleopatra. Thou hast amazed me, O Cleopatra, with what you have told us, for blessed is the womb that bore thee. The Gnostic savior, Hermes Trismegistus, or thrice great Hermes, was the legendary founder of alchemy in the West. Alchemists prided themselves on being called hermeticists and referred to their labors as the hermetic art. 36,000 original works were attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. The most influential was the Emerald Tablet. It takes up less than a printed page and consists of 13 brief enigmatic precepts, which provided an exhaustible inspiration for later alchemists. Everything about the Emerald Tablet is obscure, including its origin. Legend has it that Alexander the Great discovered the emerald slab on which the precepts were engraved in Phoenician characters in Hermes' tomb, but according to another source, Abraham's wife, Sarah, inadvertently stumbled on the precious tablet in a cave near Hebron and pried it loose from Hermes' stiff fingers. Ibn Arfaras, who died in 1197, an Arabic writer, told a different story. Hermes, he says, was the son of Adam. He had been born in China, traveled to India, where apprentice sages had to go even in those distant days, and settled in Ceylon. There he discovered a cave which contained priceless treasures, including a portrait of his father. Standing out among the beautiful gems was an exceptionally large one, the Emerald Tablet. In more recent years, the tablet's reputed antiquity has been the subject of scholarly debate, but it is still unclear whether the tablet is one of the oldest alchemical fragments known or a product of the early Middle Ages. Note, E.J. Holmyard thinks the Emerald Tablet is one of the oldest and most long-lived of all alchemical documents. See, alchemy. J. Ruska takes a more cautious attitude in his Tabulus Meridina, Heidelberg, 1926. I believe now, actually, this has actually been demonstrated, yes, definitely since 1980 when this book came out, um, that it was around the same time as the rest of the Corpus Hermeticum that we have the, that we know it was written for sure, and whether it was a fragment of something pre-Christian, that's still debatable, but most of this stuff is not content that was uh, generated out of thin air. A lot of this was copied from older texts, as we, we well are certain at this point. Actually, it was because they thought it was produced in the Middle Ages that it wasn't included in the Corpus Hermeticum. And it's been 
definitively proven now that the Emerald Tablet should be considered as part of the Corpus Hermeticum. That is something that there is scholarly agreement on, if not consensus. But you need to read the very recent articles of the last five, ten years to get the full story. Whenever it was written, and whatever its sources, the Emerald Tablet became the alchemist's credo and exerted a profound influence on alchemical writings from the 13th century onwards. It contributed mightily to the blend of Gnostic mysticism and laboratory chemistry, which came to characterize much of the Western alchemy. For this reason, it is reproduced below. The precepts of Hermes engraved upon the Emerald Tablet. 1. Speak not fictitious things but that which is certain and true. 2. What is below is like that which is above, and what is above is like that which is below, to accomplish the miracles of one thing. 3. And as all things were produced by the one word of one being, so all things were produced from this one thing by adaptation. 4. Its father is the sun, its mother is the moon. The wind carried it in its belly. Its nurse is the earth. 5. It is the father of perfection throughout the world. 6. The power is vigorous if it be changed into earth. 7. Separate the earth from the fire, the subtle from the gross, acting prudently and with judgment. 8. Ascend with the greatest sagacity from the earth to heaven, and then again descend to the earth and unite together the powers of things superior and things inferior. Thus you will obtain the glory of the whole world, and obscurity will fly far away from you. 9. This has more fortitude than fortitude itself, because it conquers every subtle thing and can penetrate every solid. 10. Thus the world was formed. 11. Hence proceed wonders which are here established. 12. Therefore I am called Hermes Trismegistus, having three parts of the philosophy of the whole world. 13. That which I had to say concerning the operation of the sun is completed. One thing I think is really interesting is when it, how it, it translates it as to accomplish the miracles of the one thing, plural miracles. There's other translation issues with this and things that I'm covering in an upcoming book, so I will hold back all the many things I want to say, because this is one of my key spiritual texts, especially point eight, um, and of course the rest of it just is a... Has, fills a major role in the Western mystery tradition, no matter what branch of it you follow. These oracular pronouncements have been dismissed as meaningless, but in their peculiar gnomic fashion, <laughs> they make excellent alchemical sense. Every alchemist promises to say only what is certain and true. Hermes was no exception. The second and third precepts refer to the fundamental alchemical doctrine of the unity of all matter. Every created thing emanates from a single divine soul substance, which assumes innumerable material forms, each of which is in a constant state of flux. Transmutation is therefore an inevitable fact of life, and the reactions which occur in alchemical vessels are microcosmic reflections of the transformations in the world at large. The fourth precept describes the sun and the moon, or sulfur and mercury, as the parents of the stone, which is also composed of the four elements. Sun equals fire, moon equals water, air, and earth. The philosopher's stone is the father of all perfection, described in the fifth precept, but only if it is changed into earth or fixed in the alchemist's fire so that it cannot volatize and vanish. During transmutation, the gross elements in base metals are separated from the subtle essence of perfect gold as the seventh precept advises. The eighth precept is a cryptic description of reflux, distillation in a kerotakis, a specially constructed vessel in which a piece of metal was suspended and exposed to the action of various vapors. This was the method Greek alchemists most commonly used to transmute base metal into gold. 
European alchemists had little trouble adapting Gnostic ideas to their own use because of the common ground between Gnostic and Christian thought. Both are concerned with salvation and redemption and describe experiences of regeneration in terms of death and rebirth. Similarities are deceptive, however, and certain basic incompatibilities made the Christian church wary in its dealing with practitioners of a science with such deep Gnostic roots. The church taught that man was innately depraved as a result of original sin, while Gnostics considered man divine, a godlike creature in temporary exile. The Gnostic influence on alchemy often led its Christian adepts to the borders of heresy and beyond, where they dared to proclaim that they were gods. The church saw this as blasphemy and reacted in its fashion. Alchemy did not come directly to the West from the ancient world. There was a long period between the 6th and 12th centuries when Greek philosophy and science were almost forgotten in Europe. Their traditions were kept alive, however, by the Arabs, who began with their great period of expansion under the banner of Islam immediately after the Prophet's death in 632 AD. In 635, Muhammad's followers captured Damascus. In 636, they besieged and captured Jerusalem. From there, they moved into Egypt, Palestine, Syria, and much of Asia Minor, Crete, Sicily, Rhodes, Cyprus, and North Africa. By the 8th century, they were in Spain. The rest of Europe watched and waited in fear until their march was finally halted by Charles the Hammer at the Battle of Poitiers in 732. The transmission of Greek learning to the Arabs was made in the many centers of their vast empire, Alexandria, Haran, Nisibin, Edessar, and Yund Shapur. The Arabs were particularly indebted to Nestorian Christians who had preserved Greek philosophical, medical, and scientific writings. The enlightened caliphs of Baghdad used these Christian scholars to translate into Arabic the works of Aristotle, Euclid, Archimedes, Hippocrates, Galen, and other Greeks. From the 8th to the 13th century, the translation and assimilation of Greek texts continued. Famous schools of learning arose in Baghdad, Damascus, Cordoba, and Toledo. A number of important Arabic philosophers emerged whose profound influence on Western thought is still being evaluated. Among the most famous were Al-Kindi, died in 873, Al-Farabi, died in 950, Avicenna, died in 1037, and Averroes died in 1198. A lot of these are the Western names, by the way. The Christian West paradoxically recovered its own classical heritage from the infidel Muslims who conquered southern Europe. See uh, C.H. Haskins' Studies in Medieval Sciences. The process began in earnest during the 11th century when Christians reconquered Sicily and parts of Spain. Conquest brought many Latin-speaking Christians into contact with Arabic and Hebrew learning, and they seized many valuable libraries. Europeans went to Spain, seeking manuscripts and arranging for their translation. Archbishop Raymond, 1126-51, to of Toledo, established a college of translators, and it was there that the first alchemical text was translated from Arabic into Latin. It was entitled, The Book of the Composition of Alchemy. The author was reputed to be a Christian ascetic by the name of Morianus, who taught the secrets of alchemy to the Arab prince Khalid ibn Yazid. The Latin version was attributed to Robert of Chester, who made the first translation of the Quran into Latin, and it was completed on 11th February, 1144. L. Stravenhagen believes the translation was ascribed to Robert of Chester at a later date to enhance the stature of the book. See his A Testament of Alchemy, being the revelations of Morianus, ancient adept and hermit of Jerusalem, to Khalid ibn Yazid ibn Muawiyah, edited and translated by Stravenhagen. Hanover, New Hampshire, 1974. That sounds like an amazing book. In most cases, the classical learning which the West recovered from the Moors bore the mark of Arab influence. This was certainly true of alchemy. Many English alchemical terms are simply transliterations from the Arabic, which were first converted into Latin and then anglicized. Alembic, alkali, alchemy, alcohol, almagest, athenor, furnace, azoth, which is mercury, elixir, mattress, naphtha, natrium, which is sodium, hence the symbol Na, and tutti, zinc oxide. I won't even try the Arabic words. The Arabic author who most influenced Western alchemy was Yabir ibn Hayyan, born 
721-722. The alchemical works attributed to Yabir were actually written, and maybe it's Jabir, I don't know, oops, written by a number of different men who lived in the 9th and 10th centuries and belonged to a group of Ismaili mystics and Shiites. Like Gnostic alchemists, they combined practical chemistry with mystical doctrines. The major contribution Yabir's work made to alchemical theory was the sulfur-mercury theory, which came from him, apparently, which was first set out in their pages and quickly became a basic part of Western alchemy. Jabir devised another theory known as the method of balance, and although this did not reach the West in all its details, it illustrates the fascination alchemists everywhere had with numbers. The object of Jabir's method was to base alchemy on number and measure, a reasonable enough aim. But Jabir's reasoning is not ours, and contemplating his notion of number and their relationship requires a fanciful orientation. Jabir followed Aristotle in thinking that bodies were composed of the four qualities of the four elements. He believed he could establish the exact constitution of bodies by determining mathematically exactly how much of each element they contained. Wow. To do this, he relied on fractional distillation, noting quite correctly that during the fractional distillation of organic substances, the gas and liquid elements distill out first, then the combustible ones. What remains is the insoluble residue of ashes. Like earlier Greek and later European alchemists, Jabir equated the liquid element with water, the gases with air, and the combustible with fire, and the residue with earth. Once the proportions of the four elements were known, Jabir believed he could vary them and make gold. All that was necessary were suitable elixirs, tailor-made to fit the needs of each base metal. Wow. Quote, in the elixir, we introduce a nature which prevails over the harmful nature residing in the body. Thus, for a substance which possesses a surplus of the element of water, one introduces fire and applies it to the degree necessary without. However, allowing the substance to be consumed by fire, which would increase the damage. In this way, the substance subjected to the action of the fire will become balanced and will be brought to the desired state. From P. Krauss, Yabir Ibn Hayyan, Contribution de la Histoire des Idées Scientifiques dans l'Islam, 1942. Yabir produced his elixirs mathematically in an astonishing fashion. He devised numerical relationships between elixirs and different minerals and metals, and on the basis of these arbitrary relationships proposed to produce the Philosopher's Stone. Sorry, Chris Bennett just interrupted the podcast to smoke a huge bowl of hash with in a lapis lazuli pipe. Lapis lazuli is my favorite stone. So now I'm crazy baked. But we're going to get through this, you and me. We're going to do it. For example, the elixir equals 100 gold, 20 silver, 10 copper, 7 lead, 4 tin, 5 iron, 2 harsini, Arsini, an alloy made from copper and nickel called Paktong in China and known as white copper or white bronze in the West. Also classical Paktong, an alloy of copper, nickel, and zinc known as nickel silver. Learn something new every day. On the basis of these equivalents, he proposed the following recipe. Take 10 parts harsini, 10 parts iron, half part gold, 4 parts copper, 2 parts tin, 3 parts lead, 1 part silver. Mix and you will obtain a substance whose constitution corresponds to that of the elixir. The formula certainly works in that 10 plus 20 plus 10 plus 28 plus 10 plus 12 plus 10 do indeed equal 100. But questions remain unanswered. It may be in order at this point to mention that the Latin version of Jabir's name, Geber, is the source of our word gibberish. (laughs) Oh, dude. Oh, God, that's too good. Another equally astonishing method Yabir, Jabir, gibberish used, <laughs> gibberish used to produce elixirs involved certain chemical operations. Jabir gave a numerical value to different procedures on that basis. It is impossible to say. Sublimation corresponded to one fiftieth solution to one seventieth, smelting to one two hundredth to transmute a bar of gold equaling 20 into the elixir or stone equaling 100 without adding any other ingredient. The alchemist had simply to smelt gold 1,000 times. 20 times 1,000 over 200 equals 100. On the basis 
of the bizarre method of balance, Jabir believed that alchemists could create innumerable substances. Science. In one day alone, the alchemist can create a thousand animals, a thousand vegetables, and a thousand minerals. All that was necessary was to combine the right proportions of the four elements or to perform certain alchemical, chemical operations tens, hundreds, or thousands of times. Jabir was one of the first writers to describe how human life might be created in a test tube. Whoa. His musings were the first of many which culminated in Mary Shelley's portrait of Frankenstein's monster. Jabir's method of balance was a fanciful spin-off of the much earlier Pythagorean notion that number is the basic factor in the universe. Jabir's use of number is in most cases even more lunatic than the Pythagorean and has very little to do with quantitative analysis as we understand it now. But it is typical of alchemical thought. In the West, alchemists were also concerned with number and proportion, and although their conclusions were different from Jabir's, they shared the same mystic and arbitrary character. Jabir also drew a connection between the letters of the Arabic alphabet and the four elements or qualities. He thought that by analyzing a word like usrab, Arabic for lead, he would be able to determine its qualitative and quantitative nature. That's very platonic, eh, to think of the... Uh, word referring to uh, a substance that's natively uh, and ontologically connected to the word itself. Yeah, I mean, that's how we get ontotheology. Behind this hypothesis was the typically alchemical view that words and symbols are indicative of the things they describe in a real rather than conventional way. It did not seem to deter Jabir a whit that another Arabic word for lead, rasas, would give an entirely different result. For all his eccentricities, Jabir was not just a mad theorist. The treatises attributed to him contain a great deal of practical information and show an astonishing grasp of chemical knowledge for the period. Sorry, I'm so fucking ripped. The earliest known recipe for the preparation of nitric acid appears in Jabir's The Chest of Wisdom. Jabir also described how to concentrate acetic acid by distilling vinegar. Knowledge of the acids marked an important step in the development of chemistry because once acids were introduced into the laboratory, a great number of hitherto unknown chemical reactions were possible. Jabir described various processes for making steel and refining metals for dyeing cloth and leather, for making cloth waterproof and protecting iron from rust. He made the practical recommendation that golden marcasite be used for illuminating rather than gold itself to bring down the cost. In general, Jabir tried to understand and describe the changes occurring in chemical processes in a more profound way than most other contemporary or even later alchemists. Juxtaposition in Jabir's writings of practical discoveries and statements of the most speculative and mystical sort underlies the difference between alchemy and chemistry. Alchemists engaged in a kind of symbolic thinking, far removed from our own scientific analysis of the world around us. The reactions in the alchemist's laboratory reflected the world outside and the heavens above. They could not be understood without reference to these. Practical chemistry was only a small part of this profound intellectual and spiritual adventure. One of the most influential texts to come to the West from the Arabs was the Turba Philosophorum, the convention or conflict of the philosophers. The history of this work reflects the tortuous route by which many alchemical treatises came to Europe and explains why they are often so difficult to understand. The work first appeared in a Latin manuscript during the 13th century, but as the brilliant researches of Martin Plesner have shown, the strange terms and names in the text can only be understood if the Latin text was a translation of an Arabic version, which was itself a translation of the Greek version. See uh, M. Plesner, The Place of the Turbo Philosophorum in the Development of Alchemy. The enigmatic, hortatory, and generally mystical style of the Turba has a great deal in common with the Gnostic Alexandrian alchemy, and it undoubtedly and unfortunately encouraged a similarly obscure 
strict style among Western alchemists. These, then, were the sources of the alchemical theory in the West. Aristotle, with a little Stoic leavening, blended with Gnostic mysticism and filtered through the minds of Arabic scientists and philosophers. By the time Europeans came to the study of alchemy, it was already an old and established doctrine with an august and venerable past. The theories upon which it was based were part and parcel of ancient science and provided useful, plausible explanations for the ways things worked in nature and the laboratory. I'll believe, says a character in The Alchemist, that alchemy's a pretty kind of game, somewhat like tricks of cards to cheat a man with charming. The lure of health, wealth, and eternal life charmed many an alchemist to the poorhouse, madness, or an untimely death. But alchemy was more than a delusion, pandering to the worst in human nature. The alchemical notion of the philosopher's stone answered such fundamental human cravings and fired such marvelous visions that its hold on people's imaginations through the ages is easily understood. Until the end of the 18th century, alchemy appeared to be firmly entrenched in sound scientific theory. There was not only the will, there was every reason for people to accept alluring prospects alchemy offered. And that is by the great Alison Kuder, who is remarkable and awesome, and you should pay attention to her and all her work. Peace. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk